0: Evening Mockingbirds, it's a storyteller, and it's time for another damned reading. So pop in those fancy little earbuds you've got, or put on those busted up headphones, and welcome to the Mockingbirds, readings from the damned. So we're currently reading To Kill a Mockingbird by Harper Lee. Before we get into the reading, I have some amazing news, but I ain't gonna tell you yet. It'll be coming along with the announcement of the next book. However, if you have already scanned my Twitter, you already know what the good news is. So, you gotta wait a couple more chapters so I get closer to the end of the book and I will announce. The big announcement, but I am very excited for it. I don't think it's happened in anywhere before in a podcast, or if it has, it's been very rare because there's not too many storytellers on on uh, that have podcasts. So that's the first thing. Second thing, we're gonna do a short recap and then we're gonna get into the reading. So, the trial's over. Tom Robinson is found guilty and sentenced to death. Atticus now has had to explain to Jim and Scout why an innocent black man could be found guilty when he is innocent on the word of a lying white man. Aunt Alexandra is still trying to turn Scout into Miss Jane Louise. It's not working very well. And uh, Tom Robinson, at the very end, uh, is shot and killed on the exercise yard. He's shot 37 times uh, by a gang of white men. So now it's Atticus and Calpurnia's job, their duty, to go tell Tom Robinson's wife, Helen, that her husband is dead. So, that's where we're at. I've done enough talking. So, we're starting on Chapter 26 of To Kill a Mockingbird by Harper Lee. Chapter 26 School started, so did our daily trips past the Radley Place. Jim was in the 7th grade and went to high school, beyond the grammar school building. I was now in the 3rd grade, and our routines were so different, I only walked to school with Jim in the mornings, and saw him at mealtimes. He went out for football, but he was too slender, too young, yet to do anything but carry the team water buckets. And this he did with enthusiasm. Most afternoons, he was seldom home before dark. The Radley place ceased to terrify me, but it was no less gloomy, no less chilly under its great oaks, and no less uninviting. Mr. Nathan Radley could still be seen on a clear day, walking to and from town. We knew Boo was there, for the same reason nobody had seen him carried out yet. I sometimes felt a twinge of remorse when passing by the old place at ever having taken part and was to sheer torment to Arthur Radley. What reasonable reckless once children, peeping through his shutters, delivering greetings on the end of a fishing pole, wandering in his collards at night. And yet I remembered two Indian head pennies, chewing gum, soap dolls, a rusty metal, a broken watch and chain Jim must have put them away somewhere. I stopped and looked at the tree one afternoon. The trunk was swelling around its cement patch. The patch itself was turning yellow. We had almost seen him a good couple of times, good enough to score for anybody, but I still looked out for him each time I went by. Maybe someday we'd see him. I imagined how it would be when it happened. He'd just be sitting on the swing when I'd come along. How'd you do, Mr. Arthur? I would say. And as if I had said it every afternoon of my life. Evening, Mr. Jean, Evening Jean Louise, he would say, as if he had said it every afternoon of my life. Right pretty spell we're having, isn't it? Yes, sir. Right pretty. I would say and go on. It was only a fantasy. We would never see him he probably did go out when the moon was down and gaze upon miss stephanie crawford had i picked someone else to look at but that was his business he would never gaze at us you aren't starting that again are you said atticus one night when i exposed a stray desire to have just one good look at boo radley before i died if you are I'll tell you right now, stop it. I am too old to go chasing you off the Radley property. Besides, it's dangerous. You might get shot. You know Mr. Nathan shoots at every shadow he sees. Even shadows that leave a size 4 a bare footprint. You're lucky you've been killed yet. I hushed then and there. At the same time, I marveled at Atticus. This was the first he had let us know he knew a lot more about something than we thought he knew. And it happened years ago. No, only last summer. No, no, mm mm-mm. Summer before that. When time was playing tricks on me, I must remember to ask Jim. So many things had happened to us. Boo Radley was the least of our fears. Atticus said we didn't see how anything else could happen. That things had a way of settling down after a good enough time. People would forget that Tom Robinson's existence ever was brought to their attention. Perhaps Atticus was right. But the events of the summer hung over us like smoke in a closed room. The adults in Maycomb never discussed the case with Jim and me. It seemed that they discussed it with their children, and their attitude must have been that neither of us could help have an Atticus for a parent, so their children must be nice to us in spite of him. The children would never have thought that up for themselves. Had our classmates been left to their own devices, Jim and I would have had several swift, satisfying fistfights apiece and ended the matter for good. As it was, we were compelled to hold our heads high and be respectfully a gentleman and a lady. In a way, it was like the era of Miss Henry Lafayette Du Bois, without all her yelling. There was one odd thing, though, that I would never understand. In spite of Atticus's shortcomings as apparent, people were content to reelect him to the state legislature that year, as usual, without opposition. I came to the conclusion that people were just peculiar. I withdrew from them and never thought about them until I was forced to. I was forced to one day in school. Once a week, we had a curtain events period. Each child was supposed to clip an item from the newspaper, absorb its contents, and reveal them to the class. This practice allegedly overcame a variety of evils standing in front of his fellows encouraging good posture and gave the child pose poise delivering a short talk that made him word conscious learning his current events strengthened his memory and being singled out made him more than ever anxious to return to the group the idea was profound but as usual in Maycom it didn't work very well in the first place, few rural children had access to newspapers. So the burden of current events was borne by the town children, convincing the bus children more deeply that the town children got all the attention anyway. The rural children, who could, usually brought clippings from what they called the Grit Paper, a publica- publication spurious super- in the eyes of Mrs. Gates, our teacher. While she frowned when a child recited from the grip paper, I never knew. But in the same way, it was associated with the lack in fiddling, eating syrupy biscuits for lunch, and being Holy rollers singing sweetly songs, the donkey and pronouncing it donkey, all of which the state paid teachers to discourage. Even so, not many of the children knew what a current event was. Little Chuck Little, a hundred years old in his knowledge of cows and their habits, was halfway through an Uncle Natchez story when Mrs. Gates stopped him. Charles, that is not a current event. That is an advertisement. Cecil Jacobs knew what it was, though. When his turn came, he went up in front of the room and began, Old Hitler, Adolf Hitler, Cecil said Miss Gates one would never begin with old anybody yes ma'am he said old Adolf Hitler has been prosecuting the persecuting Cecil Cecil no Miss Gates says right here well anyway old Adolf Hitler has been after the Jews and he's putting em in prisons. And he's taking them away, all their property, and won't let them have any of them back. And he's washing all the feeble-minded and... Washing the feeble-minded? Yes, ma'am, Miss Gates. I reckon they don't have no sense enough to wash themselves. I don't reckon an idiot keep her, his or herself clean. Well, anyway, Hitler started a program to round up all the half-Jews, too. He wants them to register in case they might want to cause him some trouble. And I think that is a bad idea and a bad thing, and that is my current event. Very good, Cecil, said Mrs. Gates. Puffing, Cecil returned to his seats. A hand went up in the back of the class. How can he do that? Who do what? Asked Mrs. Gates patiently. I mean, how can Hitler just put a bunch of folks in a pen like that? It looks like the government stopped him," said the owner of the hand. "Hitler is the government," said Miss Gates, and seized an opportunity to make education dynamic. She went to the blackboard and she printed, "Democracy" in large letters. "Democracy," she said, "Does anyone have a definition?" "Us," somebody raised. Somebody said. I raised my hand, remembering an old campaign slogan that Atticus once told me about. Well, what do you think about it, means Jean Louise? Equal rights for all, special privileges for none, I quoted. Very good, Jean Louise. Very good. Miss Gates smiled. In front of democracy, she printed, We are a. Now, class, say it all together. We are a democracy. We said it. Then Miss Gates said, That's the difference between America and Germany. We are a democracy, and Germany is a dictatorship. Dictatorship, she said. Over here, we don't believe in persecuting anybody. Persecuting comes from people who are prejudiced. Prejudiced she enunciated carefully. There are no better people in the world than the Jews, and why Hitler doesn't think so is a mystery to me. An inquiring soul in the middle of the room said, Why don't they like the Jews you reckon, Miss Gates? I don't know, Henry. They contribute to every society they ever lived in, and most of all, they are deeply religious people. Hitler's trying to do away with religion, so that so maybe he doesn't like them for that reason. Cecil spoke up. Well, I don't know for certain, he said. They're supposed to change money or something, but that ain't no cause to persecute them. They're white, aren't they? Miss Gates said, When you get to high school, Cecil, you'll learn that the Jews have been persecuted since the beginning of history, even driven out of their own country. It's one of the most terrible stories in history. So now it's time for arithmetic, children. As I never liked arithmetic, I spent the period looking out the window. The only time I ever saw Atticus scowl was when Elmer Davis would give us the latest on Hitler. Atticus would snap off the radio and say, <laughs> I asked him once why he was impatient with Hitler. And Atticus said, because he's a maniac. This would not do, I mused, as the class proceeded with its sums, one maniac and a million German folk. Looked like to me they'd shut Hitler in a pen instead of letting him sh- shut them up. There's something else wrong. I would ask my father about it. And I did. And he said he could not possibly answer my question because he didn't know the answer. But it's okay to hate Hitler. Hitler. It is not, he said. It is not okay to hate anybody. Atticus, I said. There's something I don't understand. Miss Gates says it was awful. Hitler doing like he does. She got real red in the face about it. I should think she would. But, yes. Nothing, sir. I went away. Not sure that I could explain to Atticus what was on my mind. Not sure I could clarify what was only a feeling. Perhaps Jim could provide me the answer. Jim understood the school things much better than Atticus. Jim was worn out from a day's water carrying, and there was at least 12 banana peels on the floor by his bed, surrounded in an empty milk bottle. What you stuffing for? I asked. Coach says if I can gain 25 pounds by a year after next, I can play. He said, This is the quickest way. If you don't throw it all up, Jim, I said, I want to ask you something. Shoot, he put down his book and stretched his legs. Miss Gates is a nice lady, ain't she? Why, sure, said Jim. I liked her when I was in her room. She hates Hitler a lot. And what's wrong with that? Well, she went on today about how bad it was, treating them Jews like that. Jim, it's not right to persecute anybody, is it? I mean, have mean thoughts about anybody even, is it? Gracious no, Scout. What's eating you? Well, coming out of the courthouse that night, Miss Gates was, she was going down the steps in front of us. You must not have seen her. She was talking to Miss Stephanie Crawford. I heard her say it's about somebody time about time somebody taught them a lesson. They're getting away all above themselves, and the next thing they think, they're going to marry us. Jim, how can you hate Hitler so bad and then turn around and be ugly about folks right at home? Jim was furious. He leaped off the bed and grabbed me by the collar and shook me. I never want to hear about that courthouse ever, ever again, you hear me? Do you hear me? I don't want to say one word about it to me ever again. Do you hear? Now, gone! I was too surprised to cry. I crept from Jim's room and shut the door softly. lest undue noise set him off again. Suddenly tired, I wanted Atticus. He was in the living room. I went to him and tried to get in his lap. Atticus smiled. You're getting so big now I'd to hold part of a, part of you," he said. He held me close. Scout," he said softly, "don't let Jim get you down. He's having a rough time these days. I heard you back there." Atticus said that Jim was trying hard to forget something, but what he was really doing was storing it away for a while, until enough times passed, and then he would be able to think about it, sort sort things out. When he was able to think about it, Jim would be himself again. Chapter 27 Things did settle down. After a fashion, as Atticus said they would, by the middle of October only two small things happened out of the ordinary to make on to make citizens. No, there were three things, and they did not directly concern us, the Finches, but in a way they did. The first thing was that Mr. Bob Ewell acquired and lost a job in a matter of days. And probably made himself unique in the annals of the 1930s he was the only man i ever heard of that was fired from the wpa for laziness i suppose his brief burst of fame brought on a briefer burst of industry but his job lasted only as long as his notoriety mr ewell found himself forgotten as tom robinson Therefore, he resumed his weekly appearances at the welfare office for his check and received it with no grace amid the obscure mutterings that the bastards who thought they ran this town wouldn't permit an honest man to make a living. Rich Jones, the welfare lady, said Mr. Ewell, openly accused Atticus of getting his job. She was upset enough to walk down to Atticus's office and tell him about it. Atticus told Miss Ruth not to fret if that Bobby well wanted to discuss Atticus getting his job he knew the way to the office The second thing that happened to judge Taylor judge Taylor was not a Sunday night churchgoer miss Taylor was judge Taylor savored his Sunday night hour alone in his big house And church time found him holed up in his study reading the writings of Bob Taylor. No kin, but the judge would have been proud to claim it. One Sunday night, lost in fruity metaphors and florid diction, Judge Taylor's attention was wrenched from the page by an irritating scratching noise. Hush, he said to Ann Taylor, his fat, nondescript dog. Then he realized he was speaking to an empty room the scratching noise was coming from the rear of the house judge taylor clumped to the back porch to let ann in found the screen door swinging open a shadow in the corner of the house caught his eye and that was all he saw of his visitor miss taylor came home from church to find her husband in his chair lost in the writings of bob taylor with a shotgun across his lap. The third thing happened to Miss Ellen. Third thing happened to Miss Ellen Robinson, Tom's widow. If Mister Ewell was as forgotten as Tom Robinson, Tom Robinson was as forgotten as Boo Radley. But Tom was not forgotten by his employer, Mister Link Diaz. Mr. Link Diaz made a job for Helen. He didn't really need her, but he said he felt right bad about the way things turned out. I never knew who took care of her children while Helen was away. Calpurnia said it was hard on Helen because she had to walk nearly a mile out of her way to avoid the evils who, according to Helen, chunked at her. The first time she tried to use the public road Mr. Link Diaz eventually received the impression that Helen was coming to work each morning from the wrong direction and dragged the reason out of her. Just let it be, Mr. Link, please, son, she begged. The hell I will, said Mr. Link. He told her he'd come by his store that afternoon, for she left. She did, and Mr. Link closed his store, put his hat firmly on his head, and walked Helen home. He walked through the short way by the Ewels. On his way back, Mr. Link stopped at the crazy gate. Ewel, he called. I said Ewel. The windows, normally packed with children, were empty. I know everyone la- every w- last one he you's in there sl- laying on the floor. "'I don't like it, Atticus. I don't like it at all,' was Anne Alexandria's assessment of these events. "'That man seems to have a permanent running grudge against everybody connected with that case. "'I know how that kind are about paying off grudges, but I don't understand why. "'He should even harbor one. He had his way in court, didn't he?' "'I think I understand,' said Atticus.' It might be because he knows in his heart that very few people at MECOM really believed his and may ella He thought he'd be a hero, but all he got for his pain was... was... Okay, we'll convict this Negro, but get back to your dump. He had his fling with everybody now, so he ought to be satisfied. He'll settle down when the weather changes. But why should he try to burgle John Taylor's house. He obviously didn't know John was home or wouldn't have tried. Only lights John shows on Sunday nights are the front porch and the back in his den. You don't know if Bob Ewell cut that screen. You don't know who did it, said Atticus, but I can guess. I proved him a liar, but John made him look like a fool. All the time Ewell was on the stand, I couldn't dare look at John and keep a straight face John looked at him as if he were a three-legged chicken on a square egg don't tell me judges don't try to be prejudiced juries Atticus chuckled by the end of October our lives had become familiar routine of school play and study Jim seemed to have put out of his mind whatever he wanted to forget and our classmates mercifully let us forget our father's eccentricities. Cecil Jacobs asked me one time if Atticus was a radical. When I asked Atticus, Atticus was so amused I would rather, I was rather annoyed. He said he wasn't laughing at me. He said, you tell Cecil I'm about as radical as Cotton Ton Heflin. Aunt Alexandria was thriving. Miss Maudie must have silenced the whole missionary society at one blow. For Auntie ruled that roost. Her refreshments grew even more delicious. I learned more about the poor Mirona's social life. Shit! Her refreshments grew even more delicious. I learned more about the poor Mirna's social life from listening to Miss Merriweather. They had so little sense of family that the whole tribe was one big family. A child had as many fathers as there were men in the community, as many mothers as there were women. Jay Grimes Everett was doing his utmost to change this state of affairs and desperately needed our prayers. May itself again. Precisely at the same time last year and the year before that, with only two minor changes, Firstly, people removed from their store windows and automobiles the stickers that said, The NRA, we do our part. I asked Atticus why, and he said it was because the National Recovery Act was dead. I asked who killed it. He said nine old men. The second change in Maycom since last year was not one of national significance. Until then, Halloween and Maycom was a completely unorganized affair. Each child did what they wanted to do, with assistance from another children, if there were anything to be moved, such as placing a light buggy on top of a livery stable. But parents thought things went too far last year, when the peace of Miss Tootie and Miss Fruity was shattered. Miss Tootie and Fruity Barber were maiden ladies, sisters who lived together in the only Macomb residence that boasted a cellar. The barber ladies were rumored to be Republicans, having migrated from Clanton, Alabama in 1911. Their ways were as strange to us, and why they ever wanted a cellar, nobody knew. But they wanted one, and they dug one, they spent the rest of their lives chasing generations of children out of it. Mrs. Tootie and Fruity, their names were Sarah and Frances, Aside from their Yankee ways, were both deaf. Miss Tootie denied it and lived in a world of silence, but Miss Fruity, not about to miss anything, employed an ear trumpet so enormous that Jim declared it was a loudspeaker from those old dark Victorulas. With these facts in mind and Halloween at hand, some wicked children waited out till Mrs. Barbers was thoroughly asleep, slipped into their living room, Nobody but the Radleys locked up at night. Stealthily made away with every stick of furniture therein and hid it in the cellar. I deny having taken part in such a thing. I heard them, was the cry that awoke in Mrs. Barber's neighbors at the dawn next morning. I heard them drive a truck up to the door, stomped around like horses. They're in New Orleans by now. Miss Tootie, was sure those traveling fur sellers who came through town two days ago had purloined their furniture. Dark they were, she said, Syrians. Mr. Heck Tate was summoned. He surveyed the area and said he thought it was a local job. Miss Fruity said he she'd know a may-come-voice anywhere, and there were no may-come-voices in the parlor that night. Rolling their R's all over the premises, they were. "'Nothing less than bloodhounds must be used to locate their furniture,' Mrs. Tootie insisted. "'So Mr. Tate was obliged to go ten minutes down the road, round the county hounds, and put them on the trail. "'Mr. Tate started off after (music) "'Nothing less than the bloodhounds must be used to locate their furniture.' Miss Tootie insisted. So Mr. Tate was obliged to go 10 miles out the road, round up the county hounds, and put them on the trail. Mr. Tate started them off at Miss Barber's front steps, but all they did was run around to the back of the house and howl at the cellar door. When Mr. Tate set them in motion three times, he finally guessed the truth. By noontime that day, there was not a barefooted children to be seen in Maycomb, and nobody took off their shoes until the hounds were returned. So the Maycomb ladies said things would be different this year. The high school auditorium would be open. There'd be a pageant for the grown-ups, apple bobbing, taffy pulling, and pinning the tail on the donkey for the children. There would also be a prize, of twenty-five cents for the best Halloween costume created by the wearer. Jim and I both groaned. Not that we had ever done anything. It was just on the principle of things. Jim considered himself too old for Halloween anyway. He said he wouldn't be called anywhere near the high school at something like that. Oh well, I thought Atticus will take me. I soon learned that my services would be choir on stage that evening. Miss Grace Merriweather had composed an original pageant entitled, Maycomb County, Ad Astra Per Aspera, and I was to be a ham. She thought it would be adorable if some of the children were costumed to represent the county's agricultural products. Cecil Jacobs would be dressed up to look like a cow. Agnes Boone would be made up as a lovely butter bean. Another child would be a peanut. And on down the line until Miss Merriweather's imagination and the supply of children were exhausted. Our only duties, as far as I could gather from our two rehearsals, were to enter the stage left, as Miss Merriweather, not only the author but the narrator, identified us. When she called out, Pork! That was my cue. Then the assembled company would sing, Maycomb County, Maycomb County, and we would, I to be true to thee as the grand finale, and Miss Merriweather would mount the stage with the state flag. My costume was not much of a problem. Miss Crenshaw, the local seamstress, had as much imagination as Miss Merriweather. Miss Crenshaw took some chicken wire and bent it into the shape of a cured ham. She covered this with brown cloth and painted it to resemble the original. I could duck under and someone would pull the contraption down over my head, came almost to my knees. Miss Kinshaw thoughtfully left two peepholes for me. She did a fine job, and Jim said I I looked exactly like a ham with legs. There were several discomforts, though. It was hot, and it was a close fit. If my nose itched, I couldn't scratch, and once inside, I couldn't get out of it alone. When Halloween came, I assumed the whole family would be present to watch me perform, but I was disappointed. Atticus said, as tactfully as he could, that he didn't think he could stand pageant tonight. He was all in. He had been in Montgomery for a a week and had come home late last afternoon. He thought Jim might escort me if I asked him. Aunt Alexandra said she'd be gone to bed early. She'd been decorating that stage all afternoon. and was worn out She stopped in short in the middle of her sentence She closed her mouth and opened to say it again, but no words came Smatter auntie I asked Oh Nothing Nothing she said somebody just walked over my grave She put away from her whatever it was that gave her a pinprick of apprehension and suggested that I give the family a preview in the living room. So Jim squeezed me into my costume, stood in the living room door, and called out, Poor work! Poor work! Exactly as Miss Merrimather would have done. And I marched in. Atticus and Aunt Alexandria were delighted. I repeated my part for Calperni in the kitchen and she said i was wonderful i wanted to go across the street and show miss maudie but jim said she'd probably be at the pageant anyway after that it didn't matter whether we went or not jim said he would take me thus began our longest journey together Chapter 28 The weather was unusually warm for the last day of October. We didn't even need jackets. The wind was growing stronger and Jim said it might be raining before we got home. There was no moon. The street light on the corner cast sharp shadows on the Radley house. I heard Jim laugh softly. Bet nobody bothers them tonight, he said. Jim was carrying my ham costume rather awkwardly as it was hard to hold. I thought it was gallant of him to do so. "'This is a scary place, though, ain't it?' I said. "'Boo doesn't mean anybody any harm, but I'm right glad you're along.' "'You know Atticus wouldn't let you go to the schoolhouse by yourself,' said Jim. "'I don't seem why. It's just round the corner across the yard.' "'That yard's a mighty long place for little girls to cross at night,' Jim teased. "'Ain't you scared of Hank's?' Alright, side note, haints. Haints are uh, Southern for evil spirits. Uh here in Charleston we have um the Gola, which is a uh, well, they they live on the islands. They're uh They're the black islanders basically. Uh they have their own language, um which, when I was in EMS, I had to learn. <laughs> Otherwise, you, you don't understand the older, uh, the elders uh, out there on the island. Because they, they all speak Gullah, and it is a language all on its own. So when people say if I'm bilingual, I'm like, yes, I am bilingual. I speak English and I speak Gullah. Anyway, Haints. Haints are evil spirits, but they are kept away by what is called Haint Blue. Now, in the, uh, in the poor parts of, of Charleston and out in the islands, haint blue is like this bright, bright blue. It is like royal blue. And all the houses painted that color, or the, the trims painted that color. Any, it, part of the house has to be painted that color to keep the haints out. Now, in downtown Charleston, where all the rich people live, Hank Blue is painted on the roof of our porches. Um, if you want to, go look up Charleston Row Houses. Our houses are built to, to basically smash as many on, on the Charleston Peninsula as possible. So they are one-room houses, okay, that run the length of the house, like all the rooms go down this one hallway. And the porch is on the side and the front door is when you go into the porch the front door is in front of you. So just picture like a tall rectangle and then the porch. And then when you walk your steps up the porch and you walk down the porch, that's where the door is. Um I lived in two when I was in college. Um and they're just interesting houses but on the porches of these houses the Hank Blue is like a light baby blue um, and that's more in the rit- ritzy rich part of town really like when you get closer to the battery but pretty much all of the other row houses are painted blue and it's it's to keep the Hank's away to keep this the evil spirits out of the house um, there's several other ways to to do. They have you can keep the haints out, but the biggest thing is um, uh, is is this is painting your house, a section of your house, or whatever uh, this haint blue. But it it does change between like the islanders and the um, you know the rich people. That are south of Broad. We call those SOBs. They live south of Broad Street, um, more towards the battery and the the, uh, international waterway. Um, I also have another story about Haints. When I was working EMS, we had a patient who said that uh, one of the old gullah women put the root on him. Now, the root is a curse. Um, and the only person who can take the root off is the person who did the curse okay and but he was convinced that the ER could do it and I was like you know what just get in the truck I don't care We're, I, there's no use arguing with you so get in the ambulance and uh, one of the ER docs gave him a dose of Prussian blue and um, it Prussian blue is used to treat either cyanide poisoning or arsenic poisoning. One of those, but it's also used. They inject it into joints to see where uh, the fluid is, or it, it's something to do with the joints. So he gave this man a dose of Prussian blue, and uh, which causes your pee to turn faint blue. So we waited. waited and I came back you know we had gone with a couple more you know 911 calls and then we came back to the hospital and I go doc whatever happened to uh the one who had the root put on him and he goes he he peed out he pissed out he pissed out that fucking curse like you'd I'd never seen as soon as he started pissing blue he just walked his ass outside and I was like that was good thinking. I would never have thought to do that, because I forgot that Prussian blue is um, will make your pee turn haint blue, which means you no longer have the root, and he no longer has to go to the, um. Oh, the the root doctor. They that's what they're called, the root doctors, um, or root doctors. But, yeah, they have all kinds of, they, I mean, I've met a root doctor, uh, she used to make, uh, smudges for me to, uh, cleanse my house, and, uh, they're out there, and, uh, I believe in every bit of them, because every time I cleansed my house, I had good luck, so, uh, but, yeah, look up a, if you so want to, look up a Hank. Paint Blue, Chaucer Row House, and Gullah. They're all interesting. The culture of Gullah is just amazing. Um I'm trying to think of a phrase in Gullah that I can remember, but of course I can't. So um but uh they are they are amazing people and they make the best fucking southern food I have ever eaten in my entire life. We used to go to this one uh, one woman. She was about, she was anywhere from 92 to 104. We weren't quite sure how old she was. But she would always have something for us. Because we would just go and visit. She would, she would call 911 all the time, like every day. Because she was lonely. So we would go down to her house every day and visit with her for about 30 minutes and she would give us collard greens and um collard greens and macaroni and cheese and um fried chicken and oh my god sweet tea oh yeah she was she was mm, i miss that woman so but anyway that's what a hate is in Charleston. That's how you get rid of them. Uh, and uh, look up the Gullah culture. It's uh, G-U-L-L-A-H. Um, it's pretty amazing. And uh, if you look it up and, you know, you want to comment, go to my Twitter at books underscore 451. Just leave me a message uh, if you've looked any of these up. Because um, Charleston's quite... Uh, an interesting town um, so anyway back to the story back to the story I'm sorry I totally took that over for a few minutes but that's what a hate is we laughed Haints, hot steams Incarnation secret signs had vanished from our uses mist with sunrise what was that, old things? Jim said. Angel bright? Life and death? Get off the road. I don't I don't suck my breath. Cut it out now, I said. We're in front of the Bradley place. Jim said, Boo must not be home. Listen. High above us in the darkness, there was a solitary mocker poured his repertoire in a blissful unawareness of whose tree he sat in plunging from the shrill key key of the sunflower bird to the irascible quack quack of a blue jay, to the sad lament of poor Will, poor Will, poor Will. We turned the corner and I tripped on a root growing in the road. Jim tried to help me, but all he could do was drop my costume in the dust. I didn't fall, though, and soon we were on our way again. We turned off the road and entered the schoolyard. It was pitch black. How do you know where we're at, Jim? I asked, when we had gone a few steps. I can tell where we are under the big oak tree because we're passing through a cool spot. Listen now, and I won't fall again. We had slowed to a cautious gait. We were feeling our way forward as not bump into the tree. The tree was a single and ancient oak. Two children could not reach round its trunk to touch hands. It was far away from the teachers, their spies and curious neighbors. It was near the Radley lot, but the Radleys were not curious. A small patch of earth beneath it, beneath its branches, packed hard with many fights and furtive crap games. The light in the high school auditorium blazing in the distance. But they blinded us if anything don't look ahead Scout Jim said just look at the ground and you won't fall you should have brought a flashlight Jim didn't know it was this dark didn't look like it'd be this dark and earlier in the evening so cloudy that's why it'll hold off a while though someone leaped at us God Almighty Jim yelled A circle of light burst in our faces, and Cecil Jacobs jumped with glee behind it. (laughs) Ha, 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 gotcha! You thought I'd be coming along this way? What in the heck are you doing out here all by yourself, boy? Ain't you scared, brood, Radley? Cecil had ridden safely to the auditorium with his parents and hadn't seen us, then had ventured down this far to see because he knew, good and well, we'd be coming along. He thought Mr. Finch would be with us, though. Shucks, it ain't much but around the corner, said Jim. Who's scared to go around the corner? We had to admit that Cecil was pretty good, though. He'd given us quite a fright, and I could tell he was all over the schoolhouse that he, that, that was his privilege. Say, I said, ain't you a cow tonight? Where's your costume? It's up behind the stage, he said. Miss Mayweather says the pageant ain't coming on for a while. You can put yours back to stage with mine, Scout, and we can go out with the rest of them. This was an excellent idea, Jim thought. He also thought it it a good thing that Cecil and I would be together. This way, Jim would be left to go with people his own age. When we reached the auditorium, the whole town was there except Atticus and the ladies worn out from decorating, and the usual outcasts and shut-ins. Most of the county, it seemed, was there. The hall was teeming with slicked up country people. The high school building had a wide downstairs hallway. People milled around the booths that had been installed along each side. Oh, Jim, I forgot my money, I sighed when I saw him. Atticus didn't, said Jim. Here's thirty cents. You can do six things. See you later on. Okay, I said, quite content with thirty cents and Cecil. I went with Cecil down the front of the auditorium, through a back door on one side and backstage, got rid of my ham costume, and departed in a hurry for Miss Meriwether was standing at the lectern in front of the first row of seats, making last-minute frenzied changes to the script. "'How much money you got?' Asked, asked Cecil. Cecil had thirty cents, too, which made us even. We squandered our first nickels on the House of Horrors, which scared us. Not at all. We entered the black seventh-grade room, which were led around by a temporary ghoul and residents, and they were made to touch several objects alleged to be components of human beings. Here's the eyes, we were told, when we touched two peeled grapes on a saucer. And here's the heart, which felt like raw liver. These are the innards. Our hands were thrust into a plate of cold spaghetti. Cecil and I visited several booths. Each of us bought a sack of Mrs. Judge Taylor's homemade divinity. And I wanted to bob for apples, but Cecil said it wasn't sanitary. His mother said he might catch something from everybody else's head having been in the same tub. Ain't anything around town now to catch, I protested. But Cecil said his mother said it was unsanitary to eat after folks. Later, I asked Alexandria about this, and she said people who held such views were usually climbers. We were about to purchase a blob of taffy when Miss Merriweather's runners appeared to and told us to go backstage. It was time to get ready. The auditorium was filled with people. The Macomb County High School had assembled. It was time to get ready. The auditorium was filling with people. The Macomb County High School Band had assembled in front below the stage stage footlights were on and the red velvet curtain rippled and billowed from the scurrying going-ons behind it. Backstage, Cecil and I found the narrow hallway teeming with people. Adults in homemade three-corner hats, Confederate caps, Spanish-American war caps, and World War helmets. Children dressed as various agriculture enterprises crowded around the one small window. Somebody mashed my costume! I wailed in dismay. Miss Merriweather galloped to me, reshaped the chicken wire, and thrust me inside. "'You all right in there, Scout?' asked Cecil. "'You sound so far off, like you're on the other side of the hill.' "'You don't sound any near,' I said. The band played the national anthem, and we heard the audience rise. Then the bass drum sounded. Miss Merriweather stationed behind her lectern behind the band, said, Maycomb County, Ad Astra, Per Asper. The band drum, the bass drum boomed again. That means, said said Miss Mellyweather, translating for the rustic elements, from the mud to the stars, she added, unnecessarily, it seemed to me, a pageant. Reckon they wouldn't know what it was if she didn't tell them whispered Cecil, who was immediately shushed. The whole town knows it, I breathed. But the country folks come in, Cecil said. Be quiet back there, a man's voice ordered, and we were silent. The bass drum went boom with every sentence Miss Mayweather uttered she chanted mournfully about Macomb County being older than the state that it was part of the Mississippi and Alabama territories that the first white man to set foot in the virgin forest was the probate judge's great-grandfather five times removed who was never heard from again then came the fearless Colonel Mekom for whom the county was named Andrew Jackson appointed him to the position of authority, and Colonel Macomb misplaced self-confidence and slender sense of direction brought disaster to all who rode with him in the Creek Indian Wars. Colonel Macomb persevered in his efforts to make the region safe for democracy, but his first campaign was his last. His orders, relayed to him by a friendly Indian runner, were to move south. After consulting a tree to ascertain from its lichen which way was south, and taking no lip from Sporidance who ventured to correct him, Colonel Macomb set out on a purposeful journey to root out the enemy and entangle his troops so far northwest in the forest primeval that they were eventually rescued by settlers moving inland. Miss Merriweather gave a 30-minute description of Colonel Macomb's exploits. I discovered that if I bent my knees, I could tuck them under my costume and more or less sit. I sat down, listening to Miss Mayweather drone and the bass drum boom, and was soon fast asleep. They said later that Miss Mayweather was putting her all into the grand finale, and she had crooned, PORK! with a confidence born out of pine trees and butter beans entering on cue. She waited a few seconds and then called, Pork! And then said nothing. When nothing materialized, she yelled, Pork! I must have heard her in my sleep, or the man playing Dixie woke me up. But it was when Miss Meriwether triumphantly mounted the stage with the state flag that I chose to make my entrance. Well, chose was incorrect. I thought it better to catch up with the rest of them. They told me later that Judge Taylor went out behind the auditorium and stood there slapping his knees so hard Miss Taylor brought him a glass of water and one of his pills. Miss Merriweather seemed to have a hit. Everybody was cheering so, but she caught me backstage and told me I had ruined her pageant. She made me feel awful, but when Jim came to fetch me he was sympathetic. He said, He couldn't see my costume much from where he was sitting. How could he tell I was feeling bad under my costume? I don't know. But he said I did all right. I just came in a little late, that's all. Jim was becoming almost as good as Atticus at making you feel right when things went wrong. Almost. Not even Jim could make me go through that crowd, and he consented to wait backstage with me until the audience left. You want to take it off, Scout? He asked. Nah, I'll just keep it on. I said, and I could hi- I can hide I could hide my mortification under it. You all want to ride home? Somebody asked. No, sir, thank you. I heard Jim say. It's just a little walk. Be careful of the Hanks. The voice said. Better still, tell the Hanks to be careful, at Scout. There aren't many folks left now, Jim told me. Let's go. We went through the auditorium to the hallway and then down the steps. It was still dark black. The remaining cars were pulled on other side of the building and on their headlights for little help. If some of them were going in our direction, we could see better, said Jim. Here, Scout, let me hold on to your mm, hawk. You might lose your balance. I can see all right. Yeah, but you might lose your balance. I felt slight pressure on my head and assumed that Jim had grabbed that end of the hand. You got me? Uh Uh-huh. We began crossing the black schoolyard, straining to see our feet. Jim, I said. I forgot my shoes. They're back behind stage. Well, let's go get them. But we turned around all the auditorium lights went off. You can get them tomorrow. He said but tomorrow's Sunday I protested as Jim turned me homeward you can get the janitor to let you in Scout hmm nothing Jim hadn't started in that in a long time I wondered what he was thinking he'd tell me when he wanted to probably when we got home I felt his fingers press the top of my costume too hard it seemed I shook my head Jim you ha- don't have to. Hush a minute, scout, he said, pinching me. We walked along silently. Minutes up, I said. What you thinking about? I turned and looked at him, but his outline was barely visible. I thought I heard something, he said. Stop a minute. We stopped. Hear anything? he asked. No. Well, we hadn't gone five paces before he made me stop again. Jim, are you trying to scare me? You know I'm too old. Be quiet, he said, and I knew he wasn't joking. The night was still. I could hear his breath coming easily beside me. Occasionally there was a sudden breeze that hit my bare legs, but that was all that remained of a promised windy night. This was the stillness before a thunderstorm. We listened. Heard an old dog just then, I said. It's not that. "'Jim answered. "'I hear it when we're walking along, "'but when we stop, I don't hear it. "'You hear my costume rustling. "'Oh, it's just Halloween got you.' "'I said it more to convince myself than Jim. "'Sure enough, as we began walking, "'I heard what he was talking about, "'and it was not my costume. "'Oh, it's just old Cecil,' he said. Jim said presently. "'He won't get us again.' Let's don't think let's don't let him think we're hurrying. We slowed to a crawl. I asked Jim how Cecil could follow us in the dark. He looked at me like he'd bump into us from behind. I can see you, scout, Jim said. How? I can't see you. Your fat streaks are showing. Miss Crenshaw painted them with some kind of shiny stuff so they'd show up under the footlights. I can see you pretty well, and I expect Cecil can see you well enough to keep his distance. I would show Cecil that we knew he was behind us and we were ready for him. Cecil Jacobs is a big wet hen, I yelled suddenly, turning around. We stopped, there was no acknowledgment save Hen Hen bouncing off in distant schoolhouse wall I'll get him said Jim Hey Hey, 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 hey answered the schoolhouse wall It was unlike Cecil to hold out for so long Once he pulled a joke he'd repeat it time and again We should have been leapt at already Jim me for me to stop he said softly, Scout, can you take that thing off? I think so, but I ain't got anything up underneath it much. I got your dress here. I can't get dressed in the dark. Okay, he said, never mind. Jim, are you afraid? No. Think we're almost to the tree now. A few yards from that, and we'll be on the road. We can see the street light then. Jim was talking in an unhurried, flat, toneless voice. I wondered how long he would try and keep the Cecil myth going. You reckon we ought to sing, Jim? No. Be real quiet again, Scout. We had not increased our pace. Jim knew as well as I that it was difficult to walk fast without stubbing a toe or tripping on some stones or other inconveniences, and I was barefooted, maybe because it... The wind was rustling in the trees. There wasn't any wind, and there weren't any trees except the big oak. Our company shuffled, dragged his feet, as if wearing heavy shoes. Whoever it was wore thick cotton pants, and I thought the trees rustling with soft swish of cotton on cotton, with every step. I felt the sand go cold under my feet. I knew we were near the big oak. Jim pressed my head and stopped and listened. Shufflefoot had not stopped with us this time. His trousers, swift, softly and steadily. They were stopped. He was running, 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 running towards us with no child steps. Run, Scout! Run, run, Scout! Jim screamed, and I took one giant step and found myself reeling. my arms useless in the dark. I could not keep my balance. Jim! Jim! Help me! Jim! Something crushed the chicken wire around me. Metal ripped on metal, and I fell to the ground and rolled as far as I could, floundering to escape my wire prison. From somewhere underneath came scuffling, kicking sounds, sounds of shoes and flesh scraping the dirt and roots. Somebody rolled against me, and I felt Jim. He was up like lightning and pulling me with him, but though my head and shoulders were free, I was so entangled we couldn't get very far. We were nearly to the road when I felt Jim's hand leave me. I felt him jerk backwards to the ground, more scuffling, and there came a dull crunching sound, and Jim screamed. I ran in the direction of Jim's scream and sank into a flabby male stomach. Its owner said, And tried to catch my arms But they were tightly pinned His stomach was so soft But his arms were like steel He slowly squeezed the breath out of me I could not move Suddenly he was jerked backwards And flung to the ground Almost carrying me with him I thought, Jim's up One's mind works very slowly at times Stunned, I stood there dumbly The scuffling noises were dying Someone wheezed And the night was still again still but for a man breathing heavily breathing heavily and staggering i thought he went with to the tree and leaned against it he coughed violently a sobbing bone-shaking cough. jim there was no answer but the man's heavy breathing jim jim didn't answer the man began moving around us as if searching for something i heard him groan and pull something heavy along the ground it was slowly coming to me There were now four people under that tree. Atticus? The man was walking heavily and unsteadily towards the road. I went where I thought he had been and felt frantically along the ground, reaching out with my toes. Presently, I touched somebody. Jim? My toes touched trousers, belt buckle, buttons, something I could not identify, a collar and a face. Prickly stubble on the face told me it was not Jim's. It smelled stale whiskey. I made my way along what I thought was the direction of the road, but I was not sure because I had been turned around so many times. But I found it and looked down to the street light. A man was passing under it. A man was walking with the staccato steps of someone carrying a load too heavy for him. He was going around the corner. He was carrying Jim. Jim's arm was dangling crazily in front of him. By the time I reached the corner, the man was crossing our front yard. Light from our front door framed Atticus for an instant, and he ran down the steps, and together, he and the man took Jim inside. I was at the front door when they were going down the hall. Aunt Alexandra was running to meet me. "'Call Dr. Reynolds!' Atticus's voice came sharply from Jim's room. "'Where's Scout?' Here she is, Aunt Alexandria called, pulling me along to her telephone. She tugged at me anxiously. I'm all right, Auntie. I said, you better call. She pulled the receiver from the hook and said, "Oola Mae, get Dr. Reynolds, quick. Agnes, is your father home? Oh, God, where is he? Please tell me to come over here as soon as he comes in. Please, it's urgent. There was no need for Aunt Alexandria to identify herself. People in Macomb knew each other's voices. Atticus came out of Jim's room. The moment Aunt Alexandria broke the connection, Atticus took the receiver from him. He rattled the pup, said Ula May, get me the sheriff, please. Heck Atticus Finch, someone's been after my children. Jim's hurt. Between here and the schoolhouse, I can't leave my boy. Run out there for me, please, and see if he's still around. Doubt you'll find him now. But I'd like to see him if you do. Gotta go now. Thanks, Heck. Atticus, is Jim dead? No, Scout, look after her. No, Scout, look after her, sister, he called as he went down the hall. Alexandria's fingers trembled as she unwound the crushed fabric and wire from around me. "'Are you all right, darling?' she asked over and over as she worked me free. It was a relief to be out. My arms were beginning to tingle, and they were red with small hexagonal marks. I rubbed them. They felt better. "'Auntie, is Jim dead?' No, no, darling. He's just unconscious. We won't know how badly he's hurt until Dr. Reynolds gets here. Jane Louise, what happened? I don't know. She left it at that. She brought me something to put on, and I had thought about it then. I would have never let her forget it. In her distraction, Auntie brought me my overalls. Put these on, darling, she said, handing the garments she most despised. She rushed back into Jim's room and then came to me in the hall. She patted me vaguely and then went back into Jim's room. A car stopped in front of the house. I knew Dr. Reynolds' step almost as well as I knew my father's. He had brought me and Jim into the world and led us through every childhood disease known to man, including the time Jim fell out of the treehouse, and he had never lost our friendship. Mr. Reynolds said, "'If we had been boil-prone things, we would have been different, but we doubted it. He came in the door and said, Good Lord! He was walking towards me. He said, You're still standing, and changed his course. He knew every room in the house. He also knew that if I were in bad shape, so would Jim. After ten forevers, Dr. Reynolds returned. Is Jim dead? I asked. Far from it, he said, squatting down to me. He's got a bump on the head, just like yours, and a broken arm. Scout, look that way. No, don't turn your head or roll your eyes. Look over yonder. He's got a bad break. So far as I can tell, it's his elbow, like someone tried to wring his arm off. Now look at me. Then he's not dead. No. Dr. Reynolds got to his feet. We can't do much tonight, he said, except try and make him as comfortable as We can't. We'll have to x-ray his arm. Looks like he'll be wearing an arm way out by his side for a while. Don't worry, though. He'll be as good as new. Boys his age bounce. While he was talking, Dr. Reynolds had been looking keenly at me, lightly fingering the bump that was coming up on my forehead. You don't feel broke anywhere, do you? Reynolds' small joke made me smile. Then... You don't think he's dead, then, he put on his hat. Now, I may be wrong, of course, but I think he's he's very much alive. Shows all the symptoms of it. Now go have a look at him, and when I come back, we'll get together and decide. Dr. Reynolds' step was young and brisk. Mr. Heck Tate's was not. His heavy boots punched the porch, and he opened the door awkwardly. But he said the same thing dr. reynolds said when he came in you all right scout he added yes sir i'm going in to see jim Alex then in there i'll go with you said mr tate aunt alexandria had shaded jim's reading light with a towel and his room was dim jim was lying on his back there was an ugly mark along one side of his face his left arm lay out from his body his elbow was bent slightly, but in the wrong direction. Jim was frowning. Jim? Atticus spoke. He can't hear you, Scout. He's out like a light. He was coming round, but Miss Ren- Dr. Reynolds put him out again. Yes, sir, I retreated. Jim's room was large and square. Aunt Alexandria was sitting in a rocking chair by the fireplace. The man who brought Jim was standing in a corner leaning against the wall. He was some countryman I did not know. He probably had been at the pageant, and was in the vicinity when it happened. He must have heard our screams and come running. Atticus was standing by Jim's bed. Mr. Heck Tate stood in the doorway. His hat was in his hand, and a flashlight bulged from his pants pocket. He was in his working clothes. "'Come in, Heck,' said Atticus. "'Did you find anything?' I can't conceive of anyone low down enough to do a thing like this, but I hope you found him. Mr. Tate sniffed. He glanced sharply at the man in the corner, nodded to him, then looked around the room at Jim, at Aunt Alexandria, then at Atticus. Sit down, Mr. Finch, he said pleasantly. Atticus said, let's all sit down. Have a chair, Het. I'll get another one from the living room. Mr. Tate sat at Jim's... Dust chair. He waited until Atticus returned and settled himself. I wondered why Atticus had not brought a chair for the man in the corner, but Atticus knew the ways of country people far better than I. Some of his rural clients would park their long-eared steeds under a china-buried tree in the back yard, and Atticus would often keep appointments on the back steps. This one was probably more comfortable where he was. Mr. Finch, Mr. Tate said, tell you what I found. I found a little girl's dress out in my, there in my car. Is that your dress, Scout? Yes, sir, if it's pink one, it's smockin', I said. smocking That's another thing. That's a southern thing. I actually know how to smock. It is a type of, like, stitching. You, uh... Basically, you put the fabric through this machine. And it, um... It fans it. And then you go through and you stitch, uh, whatever on it. I made one for, um, a friend of mine. Uh, a smock dress with, uh, Yoda on them. So, but yeah, smocking is another southern thing. And most... My mother she can sew and and embroider and all of that and she can also smock so we actually have a smocking machine here Uh, so I was taught to smock trying to make me a lady anyway sorry side note mr. Tate said he was behaving as if he were on a witness stand he liked to tell his own Mm. things in his own way "'untrampled by the state or the defense, "'and sometimes it took him a while. "'I found some funny-looking pieces of muddy-colored cloth. "'That's my costume, Mr. Tate.' "'Mr. Tate ran his hands down his thighs. "'He rubbed his left arm and investigated Jim's mantelpiece. "'Then he seemed to be interested in the fireplace. "'His fingers sought the long nose. "'What is it, Heck?' said Atticus. Mr. Tate found his neck and rubbed it. Bobby Wells lying on the ground under the da- the tree down yonder with a kitchen knife stuck up under his ribs. He's dead, Mr. Finch. Alright, y'all. That's the reading for tonight. I'm gonna let y'all chew on who that is in the corner that saved us. Uh, Jim and Scout. I wonder if we know them. Alright. Night, y'all. <laughs>